Welcome to another edition of Olive Hill. As discussed in the previous episode, I'll draw on my memories of Olive Hill during that time, but I can't really give my own thoughts about Violet and Lisa. Basic journalistic standards say that you shouldn't become a part of the story, but that's not why. The truth is that I didn't know them that well. I knew who they were. They were two years ahead of me in school, but we never interacted in any meaningful way. To get to know them in more detail, we got in touch with the people who were closest to them. Lisa's mother did not want to participate in this investigation, which is understandable. Violet's father passed away earlier this year. We were able to speak with others who knew them, though. But before we dive into Lisa and Violet's background, let's briefly talk about this part of Kentucky in the late 90s and early 2000s. This is a town that's big enough that you don't know everyone's name, but small enough that you recognize most everyone's face. By a pretty early age, you've seen and formed an impression of everyone in town. At the same time, we're just off Interstate 64, so visitors come through often. It's a small place, but it's not a secluded place. Growing up here was like growing up in most other rural, small-town settings. It was quiet, relatively safe, and kind of boring. The landscape of this area is kind of magical. It's on the boundary between the Appalachian foothills and the Appalachian mountains. There are tall, steep bluffs and ridges, vast green forests, and for most of the year, the days begin and end with a dense fog settling in on the mountaintops and dissipating to wisps of mist rising off the hillsides in the morning. The town itself is settled into a valley between the tall foothills, with roads spreading like tentacles winding through valleys away from town. That kind of magical setting can lead to magical thinking, and without much else going on, people tell stories, and some great folklore was born in this part of the world. My favorite was the story of two lovers who came from families that did not get along. It took place in the early 20th century, and in those days you didn't go against your family's wishes. So, after some time, these two decided to elope. The man worked night and day and lived on next to nothing, stashing away enough money to buy a car, a novelty at the time. When he'd finally purchased his automobile, they made plans to leave. On the night before Thanksgiving, they disappeared together. They left town in the dead of night. The next morning, their families woke up to the first snow of the season and to a scandal that would be the talk of the town for generations. Many people, especially the older folks, people who'd actually known them, had theories about what happened. They all said something different, that they settled down in Lexington or Louisville or West Virginia. Some thought they crossed the country and made a life in California. Some say he enlisted when the United States joined the First World War and never came home. My favorite theory, though, is that late in life, with new names and identities, they came home. It was long after their families were dead or had written them off. They bought land outside town and lived out their final years where they'd begun. And those same people think that they're buried in the town's cemetery under their new names. While it could be a magical place to grow up, it also valued order. Olive Hill was a very religious town. 
very conservative, especially then. Most people lived by what some call traditional values, and as long as you did too, you got along pretty well. The further you strayed from those traditional values, the more difficulty you were likely to encounter. We mentioned the Church of Mercy and Light briefly in the last episode. That church is important to understand the atmosphere of the town, and they were at their peak during this time. In many ways, Mercy and Light had a disproportionate influence on Olive Hill. It's hard to understand Olive Hill in the 90s without understanding Mercy and Light. Hi, how are you? I'm great, thank you. This is Carla Hayes, a member of Mercy and Light from the time period when the girls disappeared. More importantly, she's the mother of Ricky Allen, Lisa's boyfriend at the time of her disappearance. We tried to reach out to Ricky Allen himself, but he has not returned our request for interviews. So Mercy and Light started out in the early 70s. They were a bunch of hippies that came to Olive Hill from, well, I guess I don't really know where they came from. Anyway, they bought up a plot of dirt cheap land outside of town and built a few little houses out there. Houses? That's a pretty generous word. This is Sheriff Wood. He also had plenty to say about Mercy and Light. These were basically little shacks. No water, no electricity. They severely overestimated their construction abilities. They didn't call themselves a church at first. They were a spiritual community. It wasn't too long before more and more people started showing up in town and moving into their little community. And they just kept on growing and growing, and more and more outsiders came in. Now, I know you know how small towns work, and people started talking about what they were doing out there. Drugs, sex. The truth is, no one really knew anything. It was all just rumors. But there wasn't a whole lot of interaction between them and the locals, and talk just spread, and people got nervous. Well, here's the thing. They were mostly minding their own business. They'd come into town and go to the store from time to time, but they didn't bother anybody. But maybe because they didn't get to know anyone, everybody figured they were like the old hippies that they see on TV. Well, the rumors got more and more out there. Crazy things. What kind of things? Oh, Lord. Sex rituals. Growing pot. That they was hiding fugitives. Whatever you can imagine, there were rumors that it was happening out there. Anyway, all this escalated, and before long, the locals wanted mercy and light gone. Well, the First Amendment being what it is, there's no legal justification to get rid of mercy and light on the grounds that their religion made the locals uncomfortable. After a few failed attempts, there was finally a successful bid to break up the commune on the grounds of zoning and infrastructure violations. Here's the thing, though. There were a few hundred of them here by that time, and everyone in town expected them to move on and find some other place to set up their commune. The people here thought they'd won the fight, but they'd really just thrown the first punch. Instead of leaving town, the church members moved into homes all over town and built a church on the edge of Olive Hill. Well, this was in the late 70s. After they lost the farm, Mercy and Light laid low for a couple of years. And into the early 80s, there were some high-profile cases coming out of California about devil worshipers abusing kids in daycare and heavy metal records having secret messages when you played them backwards. Almost all of it was bullshit. So all of a sudden, a bunch of hippies seemed almost quaint, and Mercy and Light saw an opportunity. 
They wanted to make sure that they weren't pushed around again, and being a bunch of old hippies, they were all about peace and love. They didn't care much for violent music and devil worshiping either. They started preaching about Satan worshipers, writing into the newspaper on how to see the signs of the devil and the people in this town. It was like flipping a light switch. They were all of a sudden moral crusaders and heroes. They saw that kind of evil for what it was, and they brought in preachers from outside who were experts on Satanism to speak at Mercy and Light about how to protect yourself. They had these meetings where people share what they'd read and how the devil was infiltrating levels of society, which rock stars were secret devil worshippers and what records had secret messages. Now, not everyone was on board, a lot of the original members who came here to escape the world in the first place, well, they moved along and found somewhere else to go. The ones who stayed weren't satisfied just to stay away from rock music or whatever else they thought was evil. They all registered to vote, and they started running for city council and for the school board. They joined the police and the fire departments, and just like that, these outsiders were a major player, maybe the major player in Olive Hill. All of a sudden, it was a pretty bad idea to get on the wrong side of mercy and light. If you were critical of them or hostile, they may find that your business permit stalled out, or the fire marshal who was a member would find reasons not to grant you that occupancy permit. You didn't have to be a member of mercy and light, but it served you well not to go up against them. That's what was happening when I joined them. That was in the mid-90s, and I'll be honest, I wasn't in great shape back then. I had some some issues. I hadn't really been paying attention to this whole transition. Then I got clean and started going to AA meetings there. And all I knew early on was that these people were there for me when I was in a really hard place. Carla readily admits that while she wasn't one of the more unstable personalities in the group, she found herself swept up in the mission of the church to purify the town. Mercy and Light's eyes were no longer on creating an outpost for themselves in the wilderness. They wanted to turn Olive Hill into that outpost. I got more involved with the church. There was something going on pretty much every day, and it was great for keeping me busy and away from the old people that I'd been getting in trouble with. And it was exciting. We were really doing something. We were making changes that we thought were for the best. You know how it is to have a mission and partners in that mission? The bonds and the friendships you form grow so deep, so quickly. It was easy to get lost in it and lose sight of the rest of the world. So we went to work. We started going after curriculum we didn't like in schools. We passed ordinances that promoted our values, and enough people who weren't members of MNL also agreed with us. So it became easy enough to start shaping the town in our own image. So it wasn't a secret that Mercy and Light saw Lisa as a threat to the town. I don't know if we saw her as a threat. People said we were out to get her, but we really just wanted to help. They named the Banks girl and a few others from the pulpit on a regular basis. There had been an episode at the high school, and they were convinced that she was either a Satan worshiper or that she was possessed without realizing it. Lisa seemed lost. That's such a difficult age. So how did you feel about Ricky and Lisa dating? It, it made me uncomfortable. I wasn't crazy about it. I'm not proud that I wasn't on her side. If I could do it again, 
knowing what I know now and being the person that I am now, I think I would have done things differently. At the time, though, at the time it scared me. I was so bought into their particular kind of crazy, and I was afraid for my son. I didn't like it at all that they were together. I really wish, I really wish that wasn't true. Mercy and Light didn't have a consistent theology. They not only believed that the devil and demons were trying to persuade unbelievers. Some members believed in ghosts, in forest spirits, and all kinds of lore and legend that grew out of the mountains. Mercy and Light still exists today, but it's mostly a normal country church that's on the more traditional end of the spectrum. Lisa Banks was identified as a spiritual threat to the town. She wasn't the only one. There were others. But she was targeted intensely. This was the backdrop to growing up in Olive Hill in the 90s. It's the place where Violet and Lisa grew up. But if you weren't particularly interested in the town's ongoing culture war, it was just background noise to an otherwise ordinary and uneventful childhood. Hey, it's good to see you. Come on in. You can put your coat up over here. This is Anthony Bledsoe, a childhood friend of both Lisa and Violet. And later on, he became Violet's boyfriend. He lives in Cincinnati now, about a two-hour drive from Olive Hill. This was recorded in his living room. You know, it's, it's crazy. Your accent is totally gone. I know. It definitely took some work. Oh, my. Who is Emily? Uh, that's nobody. That is a heavily decorated envelope. I think you've got an admirer. <laughs> no, nothing like that. Come on in. Sorry, I just got here and I'm already going through your mail. It's fine. It's laying out and it's not like you're going through my drawers. You're not going to go through my drawers, are you? No, Scout's honor. You look like you've done pretty well for yourself, too. I still can't believe that that was you in Philadelphia. I told people when it happened, I went to school with her. That was definitely an experience. He's referring to my big break. I'll talk about it later in the series, but if you're impatient, you can Google it. After a few minutes of catching up, I asked Anthony what it was like growing up with Violet and Lisa. He didn't waste any time. So, at the time of their disappearance, Violet and Lisa were very different people. The stories talk about these two girls that had nothing in common and disappeared at the same time. It wasn't that simple. For the last few days, for the last few years at least, they didn't have anything to do with each other. But when we were kids, the three of us were best friends. There was a little falling out when we got older, but Lisa and Violet were really close when they were younger, and a lot of people forget that. Can you tell us about growing up with them? How did you all come to be friends, and what were those days like? Well, I don't really remember meeting them, our parents had been friends since before we were born, so Violet and Lisa were just always there, you know? We spent a whole lot of time at Violet's house. Her place was huge. They owned a whole lot of land that backed up to the forest. My family lived right down the road, and Lisa was next door to me. We would just hop a fence, walk a mile or so, and get to Violet's. Violet's mom didn't work, so we hung out there every day in the summer when we were in elementary school. And on the weekends, our parents hung out, drinking and doing whatever adults did back then. 
and we would go explore in the back of the Hales' property. Lisa and I felt like we were adventurers, but Violet knew her property pretty well, and it didn't take long for us to get bored with it. We weren't allowed to go back past the end of her property, out into the forest. It was for good reason. It would have been really easy for kids, with no sense of direction, to get lost out there, to think that they were heading home and actually be walking deeper into the forest. It wouldn't be the first time that someone went missing out there. But you know, it wasn't long before we started making our way out into the forest and exploring for real, despite our parents' rules. The first couple of times, we didn't go very far, maybe just a couple hundred yards. We could still see the fence line at the back of Violet's farm. Once we got comfortable out there, we started exploring all day. That part of the forest isn't where you'll find hikers and campers. It's protected land. There are no houses, no signs of humans, and it's about 30 miles deep into the forest when you begin approaching the first campsites or hiking trails. This is pure wilderness. It feels vast and endless to me as an adult. As a kid, it was the edge of civilization. It was hard to imagine anything on the other side of it. So what did you do while you were out there? And how'd you avoid getting bored with the forest in the same way you got bored with Violet's property? It doesn't take much for a kid to fall in love with the forest. We played hide-and-seek, we made up and told stories, we built forts that were so elaborate that we'd spend weeks expanding them into these sprawling hideouts. Okay, we spent two summers clearing out just one of them. But in a little town like Olive Hill, there isn't much going on and you have to make up your own fun. So a landscape so vast and endless, with three kids' imagination, there was no limit to the possibilities. I'm telling you all this because you have to understand, we knew that forest like it was the back of our hand. We grew up in it. We could make our way blindfolded, or, you know, more relevant, in pitch black night. I can't figure out how either Lisa or Violet could have gotten lost out there even if it was the middle of the night, and even if Violet had a drink or two. So there was this thing that happened. We were in first grade, kindergarten, and we were out there playing hide-and-seek. Then I spotted Lisa behind a tree. She and Violet were both hiding back there. The tree that they were hiding behind was next to a drop-off into a ravine that I guess they lost track of their surroundings, because when I shouted that I had seen them, and came running to tag one of them, they both turned and started running, and it only took about three steps before they ran straight off the edge of the ravine. They fell about 20 feet straight down, and when they hit the ground, they rolled another 20 feet down a steep hill. By the time I got to the drop-off, they had finished their roll, and neither one of them was moving. I was scared to death, and I was screaming at them, but they weren't moving so I started looking for somewhere to climb down. It took a couple minutes for me to get to them, and I was focusing on that so I wouldn't fall too, and that's when I heard them start screaming. It startled me so bad that I almost fell off the rock face too. When I turned, they were looking at each other, just pointing and screaming hysterically. They were trying to speak, but they couldn't. They just kept yelling. This freaked me out even more, I didn't know what to do, so I ran away. I could still hear them screaming for a long time after I ran off. I got back to the edge of the forest by the fence row at Violet's farm, and I waited for them there. 
because I couldn't go back and say that they fell and I had left them. After a while, I don't know how long, I heard them coming. When I looked up, they were just walking back and they were freaked out. They didn't say anything to me, they didn't look at each other, and we all just went our separate ways. So, not only did we know the forest like the back of our hands, we also knew to respect it. You couldn't let your guard down while you were out there. I just can't see things happening like they say it did. There has to be more to it than that. So there was a falling out between Violet and Lisa pretty early on, is that correct? Yeah, well, sort of. I wouldn't actually call it a falling out as much as I'd call it growing apart. Now that I'm thinking about it, the whole growing apart thing kind of started after they fell off that ravine. Neither one of them really wanted to go back out into the forest again. Lisa's family started having troubles at about the same time this happened. I don't think that me and Violet or anyone else in our circle of friends knew actually how to help them. She just slowly stopped coming around. And then when her dad left and she and her mom moved into the town, she switched schools. We didn't really see each other anymore. So when it comes to the disappearances that summer, it's safe to say that you were closer to Violet than to Lisa. Yeah, without question. When we were kids, I was actually a lot closer to Lisa. We used to walk to Violet's together, and we had more in common. But then me and Violet kind of, I don't know, rediscovered our friendship? This was way before it was anything romantic. By the time we got to high school, Lisa was a totally different person and kept to herself. We'd say hi in the hallway, but that was really it. Violet and I stayed close, though, and then junior year we started dating. So what was she like, later on when you two were dating? I don't know. I mean, it's not that I don't know, it's just that you can't always tell what's nostalgia and what things were actually like. She was playful. Gorgeous. I had a thing for her for a long time, and probably as long as I'd been interested in girls. Her parents had people over, including my parents, so I came along. There was no one else our age, so we went out for a walk. There's this barn at the back of their property that's more than a barn. It's got a little guest house attached to it. One thing led to another. We were holding hands, and then we were kissing. We never actually had a conversation. We just both had an understanding that we were together. That was uh, spring of 2000, I think. So we were already friends. Had been our whole lives. We didn't really have to get to know each other. But then all of a sudden, it's okay to talk about things that we'd never talked about before. We really allowed ourselves to be vulnerable with each other. I'd never been vulnerable with anyone up until that point. We lost our virginity to each other a few weeks after we started dating. I'm sorry, is it okay to talk about that? Sure. Anything we can't use, we'll edit out. Okay. There's one thing that is kind of weird. I've never really brought it up in an interview before, so I'll just tell you and you can decide whether or not you want to use it. Go for it. So, we skipped school. Her mom was away somewhere for a few days, and her dad was at work, so I came over to her place. We were hanging out for a while, 
and I remember actually thinking that it took us a long time, just beating around the bush until we finally did it. So we finished, and we were all snuggled up on her bed, and then we fell asleep. I don't know how long I'd been asleep, but I woke up, and I was lying next to her. I remember watching Violet's face as she breathed, slowly and peacefully. I remember her eyelids fluttering when I moved. I don't think I saw something, or maybe I just sensed something, but I turned and looked out the window, and when I did, Violet was also standing outside the window, looking in at us. I looked back, and she's in bed with me. I was looking at her face. It was her. I looked back to the window, and she's still there watching us. I am 100% certain that they were both Violet. I remember thinking that I should be terrified, but I wasn't. I watched her, the Violet at the window, and she made eye contact with me briefly, but spent most of the time looking at herself, I guess? The Violet that was in bed with me. I wasn't afraid, which is weird as hell, but I was also frozen. I didn't dare move or draw attention to myself. I don't know how long she stood there in the window, but I looked away for a second, and then when I looked back, she was gone. I can't explain it. I don't know if I was half awake, half asleep and still dreaming, but I am 99% certain that I was awake. Maybe it's a memory that I added in later, after she was gone. You know, when it felt more like a ghost? I don't know, but... When we were kids, we used to go play in the forest. I'd go off to pee behind a tree and they'd be playing, whatever. The point is that I'd be doing something else and I'd go to find the two of them and like two or three different times when I'd catch up to them, at first glance I'd walk up to what I thought was Lisa and Violet and then when I got closer there would be a third girl there who looked identical to either Lisa or Violet. And I mean identical. Like... They would move together, their facial expressions changed together. It was almost like a mirror image. Like I said, I haven't talked to anyone else about this before, so I know it sounds crazy. Anthony was considered a suspect and held for questioning the day after Violet disappeared. There was no evidence to justify holding him. I don't believe in ghosts. I don't think that there was a ghost in the window that day. And I don't think that Violet was watching herself sleep. But this was our shared ghost story. Some of us can claim it more than others. Anthony Bledsoe is haunted by the memory of his first love. I don't know what that's like. But we were all involved somehow. We all shared it somehow. Like I said, it's a small enough town that even if you don't know everyone's name, you knew their face. And you noticed when that face was gone. There was a magic, a romance to growing up in those mountains. But like all magic, when the trick is eventually revealed, and when the magic is torn away from you, it makes it harder to believe the next time, to lose yourself in it. Remember that couple I told you about? They fell in love early in the 20th century and eloped on the night before Thanksgiving. And everyone in town had a theory about what life they went on to lead. 
Well, a few years before the disappearance of Violet and Lisa, a road crew was widening US 60 through Olive Hill to add a truck lane. When they cleared out a long overgrown ravine by the highway, deep under the brush, they found an ancient model car. And inside there were two skeletons, one male and one female. The car was made the year that couple eloped. In those days, there wasn't driver's ed, and you didn't have to have a driver's license. You didn't have to know what you were doing. The car had run off the road, down an embankment and into that ravine, where it rested for 80 years. The night that couple eloped, the night before Thanksgiving 1914, that night was the first snow of the season. If you close your eyes, you can imagine a small mountain town a century ago. There's a quiet cold in the dead of night, lit by the orange flickering of oil street lamps. You can see that ancient model car, brand new and spotless, pull up a few houses down so that it doesn't wake her family. You can see the young man's breath while he rubs his hands together for warmth. Moments later, you can see his face light up as his love walks out the front door, closing it slowly and silently behind her and tiptoeing to the street. You can imagine the delight on her face when she sees him waving his hand out the car window. You can see her climb in and snuggle up close for warmth. He puts his arm around her and puts the car in gear as they begin their journey. Their entire lives to spin together and their great adventure waiting for them somewhere out there in this great big world. She pulls herself closer to him as the first flakes of snow begin to stick to the road. This is Olive Hill. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.